Well, let's uh, prepare ourselves by turning to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5, and we've been looking at the study on false teachers versus truth. False teachers versus truth. And there are public false teachers. There are televised false teachers. There are movements that are perhaps easier to identify on a broader church scale or Christian movement where you would say, you know, that doesn't seem orthodox or that seems to be errant or that seems to be something that is leading people astray, perhaps trends that promise uh, to give back physical wealth if you'll just give more money or trends that are hyper-mystical that seem just outright pagan as you watch vain repetition and people being entranced in some sort of uh, whooped-up experientialism. You might say, yeah, that's probably not safe Christianity. That's probably not true to the gospel. There are easy, easily detected her- heretical movements that are out there that we need to be discerning over. This heresy and false teaching that was striking at the churches in Galatia was not so easily discerned. It was subtle. It was a blending of the old covenant with the new covenant, a blending with Judaism and Judaistic practices, ceremonial practices that were being leveraged by false teachers to say, if you want inside our community, you better fulfill these religious rites first. Really what they were saying was more than just church membership. They were saying, if you want in our spirituality, if you want inside of our saving gospel, you better do these things first. And those kinds of Subtle distractions happen within the church all the time. Anytime you're in a discussion where there is spiritual acceptance or spiritual rejection based on something other than the gospel or extra to the gospel, that is connecting with what was going on back then that will be rehashed and redone throughout church history and church future. Satan attacks. There are those who are labeled within churches as the haves and the have-nots. There are even good-natured movements within the church that suddenly become legalistic bondage for people. Are you part of this parenting strategy or are you not? Are you raising your children along these guidelines or are you not? Have you not tried this system of thinking or this action or have you not forbidden this from your kids or not? Those kinds of dimensions creep into a church and become legalistic vices. Perhaps not jeopardizing a person's soul, but it very easily can sideline a person spiritually where you wonder, what am I doing right or what am I doing wrong? Why aren't I flying spiritually and enjoying Jesus? What's going on? The book of Galatians is a book to address this. If you'll remember from last week, verse 7, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running, you were doing well, you were finding your joy in the gospel, 
And now you're sidelined. You've come out of the lane of grace in the race of the Christian life. Heresies enter in. They are theological error, and it doesn't take much error to taint what's going on spiritually in a, in a corporate way and in an individual's lives, life. And so if you're following the outline, I'll just pick up with point one and run us to the final two points that I didn't get to last week. It's understanding paths, pursuits, and patterns of false teachers. You could add to that false teaching. False teachers enter in in verses 7 and 8. Uh, Just to recap, they are on a murderous mission. They're hinderers. They're troublemakers. Verse 8 says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This is not from God. And we can infer from that that false teaching comes from Satan himself. He is the liar of liars. He's the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy and he wants to murder people he wants to take people to hell with him where he is condemned to be well point two what you have is you have a false teaching and false teachers that have a widespread influence and verse nine talks about this a little leaven leavens the whole lump Just a small bit of heresy can destroy the whole lot. James 3, 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. It only takes just a little bit of arsenic to be poisoned into the air system where suddenly people can be dying and not know why. Only takes a little bit. Luther said... In theology, a tiny error overthrows the whole teaching. Spurgeon said one man's influence can destroy thousands, and we know that to be true. Point three of last week, verse 10, their penalty is inescapable, inescapable. Paul had confidence where? In the Lord. He wasn't trusting in the Galatians. He was trusting in God's sovereign work in these believers' lives. He had confidence in the Lord that they wouldn't take another view, that they wouldn't follow the negative wrong path ultimately. His confidence was in Christ in this regard. But he said, to the one who is troubling you, that one will bear the penalty, the crino, the judgment, whoever he is. The troubler will ultimately find himself under the judgment of God. And so Paul's confidence was strong. He was preaching truth. He was trying to curb the evil influence that was messing people up spiritually. He was doing his best, but he was trusting the Lord as he did that. He knew that God would ultimately protect true saving faith. And as we talked about last week... We have a shared mission with Paul, don't we, to do this for each other. We're not supposed to be heresy hunting and out there trying to, you know, look at the latest uh, schemes of Satan as broadcast on the internet. I'm not saying we shouldn't read up on things and be discerning in that way. But we're not, we're not, it's not a game that we're playing where we're trying to be right all the time. What we're trying to do is use the grid of scripture 
to, to read the Bible, to study God's word on behalf of not only our own protection, but for the sake of others. We're supposed to protect each other as the body of Christ. You're supposed to reach out to brothers and sisters in Christ, to youth who are here in Christ and to help people. And if you don't say those things and people begin to fall off spiritually or fall down spiritually, whether into immoralities or false heresies, false teachings, and you'll know it as you see it, as you watch people drift into one of two um, errant, aberrant paths, you'll know it, you'll see it. And if you don't do anything, if you don't say anything, then there's a shared responsibility in that. There's shared culpability in that. And God calls us to lift each other up to higher ground. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's putting himself out there. This is not how you win friends. You might influence people, but it's how do you lose friendship and you lose relationships with people by going there regarding things that people want, enticements. But at the same time, you win friends for eternity if you're willing to put yourself out there and say hard things. The judgment for false teachers is sure, though, and is certain. Second Peter 2, we talked through this passage last time. I would invite you just to turn there to give us a ramp and runway for our final two verses in this section. Second Peter 2, but false prophets who arose among the people just as there will be false teachers. Peter's talking about the Old Testament false prophets. In the New Testament, in the church, in the church age, there will be false teachers who will bring secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. That's a reference to being created, even denying the creator. The word bought there could be translated as being created. We're all made in the image of God. People are even denying that there is a God at all, right? That's why we're bringing up Bill Barrick to correct us and to tell us that there is a creator and he can create in six literal days the world, the universe, and all that we have around us. And he gets glory for that. There's glory in knowing God who is creator and heresies abound. Even within the church, denying God's lordship over creation. They bring destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them. There will be strict destruction because of that. Many will follow their sensuality. They're appealing to sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed and their greed will By their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago, it's not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. A day with the Lord is as as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. So if you think the liberals, if you think the evolutionists, if you think that the heresies, the subtle heresies, the legalistic programs that insert like serpents into the church, if you think they're winning, they're not. And they are headed for a sure and certain Destruction. They're irrational animals, verse 12. Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. This is the condemnation that God has on false teachers. This is the abhorrence God has for false teaching. They're blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will be will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage, as what they earn for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast on you. Do you hear that language? 
This is how aggressive the New Testament is about this subject. And it's something that we typically don't take very seriously, but we very well should. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, and they have hearts trained in greed. They're accursed children. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Verse 19 is a connection back to Galatians. They promised them freedom. The freedom that was promised in Galatia was through legalism. Hey, just do these things and you'll be fine. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. Listen, you are a slave, whether you know it or not. You are either a slave of sin or a slave of Christ, right? So we choose Christ, not satanic heresies. We want the freedoms of the gospel, not the vices and bondage of the troublemakers, and troublemakers are there. So they're on a murderous mission, their influence is widespread, their penalty is inescapable, and point four, leading us into verse 11, is their methods are malicious. What are the malicious methods of the false teacher? Look at verse 11 of Galatians 5. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The form of persecution here is verbal, not physical. Rome's persecution, as we would read of in the New Testament, he was whipped, Paul was whipped, he was beaten, he was beaten 39 times, uh, 40 lashes typically killed someone. Paul underwent this kind of beating. He was beaten with rods, as Paul and Silas sang in the cell of Philippi. He was imprisoned. He was under house arrest, and then ultimately he went to a Mamertine prison. 2 Timothy 4 was his last will and testament, and then he was taken out of that hole-in-the-ground prison and executed by severing his head from his body. So he was physically persecuted. He was also verbally persecuted. And for the Galatians, it was verbal persecution. Persecution not from Rome, persecution in the church from his kinsmen, from his fellow Jews. They were persecuting him, creating a very damaging effect, a damaging threat in his ministry. They were spreading rumors saying that Paul not only preached a free gospel, but he also required circumcision sometimes. Paul was, in essence, they were saying he was preaching out of both sides of his mouth. Paul is inconsistent in his message, inconsistent in what he was preaching. He was saying, yes, I do not require circumcision for the gospel, but at the same time, sometimes I do require it. And so Paul is, in essence, a hypocrite. And verse 11 is where Paul is confronting this, saying there is evidence to the contrary. And the evidence is I'm still being persecuted for what I'm preaching. 
if I wasn't being persecuted for what I was preaching, then I perhaps was indeed sending mixed or contradictory messages or signals. Paul was preaching grace, but you see verse 11, the accusation was that he was preaching circumcision. Brothers, if I still preach circumcision, they were confronting his preaching ministry. The word preaching is keruso, his proclamation ministry. This is Paul's lifeblood. This is his gifting. This was his calling as a preacher. If Paul was nothing else, he was a preacher. And they were saying, Paul, you're not being clear or consistent in what you are preaching and what you are espousing. You're saying one thing, but you're promoting another. Or you're saying two different messages depending on who you're addressing. It seems like you are preaching in one sense a gospel light message. Something that is currying to the Gentile believers a gospel that's easy, too easy, not requiring anything from the Old Covenant Scripture. Well, Paul's gospel was not some well-kept secret. He was preaching, as we would read through Galatians up to this point, a very clear message, a very clear gospel. He was preaching the gospel of grace alone. They were saying that was too soft. And you'll remember with Titus, who he had brought back with Silas on his, or with Barnabas on his first missionary journey, where he went to the Jerusalem council, Galatians 2, chapter 2, verse 3, speaks of uh, that encounter. He says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So for entrance, Paul was not requiring circumcision at that point. And the reason he wasn't saying Titus should do that is what the Judaizers were saying. Acts 15.1 says at the Jerusalem Council, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. You cannot be saved. That's what they were saying. Unless Titus goes through this religious rite, he's not inside the church. He's not inside Christ. He's not saved. So you got to do this physical act to be saved. See, that has nothing to do with our church today, but it does. You have to check your heart on that. That's the wrong act. But on the other hand, Paul did ask Timothy to be circumcised. Why did he do that? And here's where the accusation was founded. You didn't require it for, you refused it for Titus. And now you were requiring it for Timothy. But Timothy was born of a Jewish mom. So it made sense that he could remove any offense by aligning himself with the Jews through custom and through, you know, love and kindness, removing any obstacles so he could evangelize the Jews. So there wasn't a confusion about his motivation for opening the door to the gospel in that regard. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, to the weak I become weak, to the strong I become strong, to those under the law I will act as if I'm under the law, though I'm not under the law, to those who are free I will act as if I'm free. Anything I can do to win in order to win people to Christ, 1 Corinthians 9, 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. That's what he was saying for Timothy to do. But 1 Corinthians 7, 17 shows that Paul's normal modus operandi was for people when they would become Christians just to remain in whatever condition they were in when they were called. 
And that's how it is for us in Christ. He said, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. If you, says, let him not seek to remove the marks if at the time of your calling you are circumcised, but let him not seek circumcision at the time of your, if at the time of your calling you're not circumcised. So the issue is not allowing for there to be a work at all connected to saving grace through faith alone. And I'll tell you this, many of you, as I have, will, will conjure up some kind of works-oriented spiritual path. Oh, I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start praying more. I'm going to start reading the Bible more. I'm going to attend that Bible study now. I'm going to show up more. I'm going to give more. All these things are the trappings and applications of a false gospel-mindedness. It is. And the joy of the Christian life comes flooding in when you say, I can't do it. It's only Christ. He saved me. He grows me. And out of that joy, I serve. And we're going to talk about that next week. How do you obey the law of God that is now for us the law of love? How are you motivated by love for Christ, not by a works-mindedness? What stands out to me as well is how blind the false teachers were to what Paul was doing. They really did think Paul was a big contradiction. They really were blinded. And when people are blinded and their minds are made up against someone, when their ears are clogged up and they're deaf and they won't hear truth anymore, that blindness overcomes someone and they view a person only through that lens. And that's where these accusations become so solid and get traction. Spiritual deafness is equally powerful. It renders people unwilling to listen. And you have encountered people where you try to tell them the truth, but they will not hear it. Logic does not break through. Philosophy does not break through. Sometimes quietness will not break through. Sometimes Bold confrontation won't break through. And you just go, what is going on? Well, it's spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness that only God can overrule at that point. Though we must be faithful to do our best, but we trust the Lord. Paul was being persecuted, it says, verse 11. The word persecution, dioko, means to pursue, to run after, to drive away. And that's what they wanted. They wanted Paul's influence gone. They wanted him to leave. They wanted their control. But the persecution was the proof that Paul's gospel had liberated him and he wanted it to liberate them. Christ had made Paul free. He was not riding the fence on the gospel in terms of his life or his message. It was offensive. It was robbing the Judaizers of what they thought was their Jewishness. When Jesus preached that Christ's mission and message was finalized in the cross and that the cross work of Christ summarily ended the Judaizers' mission and message, that was an offense. The Jews also were being racist here, by the way. They wanted some kind of ethnic barrier, some kind of ethnic clarification between Jew and Gentile within the church which is not Christian and is not the gospel. Chrysostom, known as Golden Throat, A.D. 400s, he was an early church father in the church. He noted how when Stephen, the first 
martyr in the church in Acts chapter 6 when he was attacked by the Sanhedrin that Sanhedrin didn't charge Stephen for worshiping Christ. You know what they charged Stephen for and killed him over? For speaking, this is Acts 6, 13, speaking words against their holy place and the law. Hey, don't touch our law. Don't touch our control source. Don't touch our ethnicity. And we're going to kill you for it. A lot of times where we preach Christ, people are fine with us preaching Christ and even being Christians in this culture as long as we don't touch their idol, their problem, as long as we don't confront them as sinners, as long as we don't say that Jesus is your only hope for salvation, we'll be fine. We can all be friends. But the gloves come off when you truly preach all of the gospel. Paul was accused of so many things. They wanted to shut him up. The Corinthians wanted to shut him up, calling him foolish and unsophisticated as a speaker, 1 Corinthians 2.1. He was a huckster or a scam artist peddling the word of God in 2 Corinthians 2.17. He was a manipulator with cunning, 2 Corinthians 4.2. He was not erudite enough. He was this prisoner that in Philippi they mocked. Mocking preachers said, look at the prisoner, look at the one in chains. And they were saying you were unqualified because of that, or he was, Philippians 1.17. Back in Corinth, he was accused of being too soft, too humble, 2 Corinthians 11.7. An embezzler who robbed the churches, 2 Corinthians 11.8. That's just to name a few. There are a lot of implied accusations against Paul, and that is to try to get people to shut up the truth. Galatians 6.12 shows, though, that Paul was not the hypocrite. Galatians 6.12 shows who the hypocrites really were, who the cowards really were, and that was the false teachers. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. As one of my friends jokingly puts it, now the shoe's on the other hand. Anyway, whatever. It's just to wake you up. The true hypocrites here were the Judaizers. They didn't want persecution. They didn't want to give the clear message of the gospel. They wanted there to be some works involvement because that plays to people's pride. People want, just listen, they want a little bit of credit for their salvation. People do. It's like, again, you're drowning, you're going under. The only way you're going to be saved is if that life preserver comes out and God saves you and pulls you out of the water. They, they want at least one swim stroke toward that life preserver. Just one. I, you know, I did something to save myself. No, you didn't. God saved you. That's what we pray. We pray, God save my unsaved Friend, family member, save him or her. He or she cannot save himself. That's what prayer proves. We believe God is the one who is the Savior, not a person saving him or herself. And persecution is promised for those who believe in a gospel that is Christ alone, faith alone, it's grace alone. It's, it's all the alones that basically say only God is the one who can do it. It's not us. Those things are not works. The glory of God alone, that's not a work. Scripture alone, it's the power of the word of God that God's using to save people. Those are the five solas of the Reformation. 
that's saying the same thing. God alone saves. Isaac in Galatians 4.29 is mentioned as the allegory for the gospel of promise. He's the line of faith through Abraham and Isaac rather than Ishmael. And as Charles, Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it, the Ishmaels will always be persecuting the Isaacs. Galatians 4.29. Works and grace are mutually exclusive and gospel preaching will and gospel teaching and gospel saying, if you say the gospel like this, it will put you at risk. It is a risk. The rewards are great because people come to faith in Christ and they're friends for eternity. But you may lose friends. If Paul was watering the message down, being hypocritical, then look at the end of verse 11. If he was doing that, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The word offense there is the word you've heard before probably. It's the Greek word scandalon. Scandalon. If Paul was preaching a grace light gospel, a gospel that was free grace, what people want where they're going, you know, I want grace, but he was preaching it with repentance. He was preaching it with truth. If he was watering down the message at all, or if he was requiring circumcision... And saying, look, you got to do this and then that will ensure salvation. Then people would not be offended by what he was saying. Offense or scandal on is the bait and stick trap springing when touched. It's something that shocks people. It's a gospel that people don't give approval for. The Greek lexicon B-A-G-D says it's that which gives offense and causes Revulsion, that which arouses opposition, an object of anger or disapproval, a stain. It's why Christianity is targeted in our society and viewed as hate speech. But don't people want to hear grace? Don't people want to hear a gospel where there's no works required? Don't people want to go, I can't save myself, I'll just have grace. Yeah, people want a gospel that defines grace as license. You following? People want to define grace in a way that's not biblical grace. They want that gospel. People want a gospel that Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It's a grace with no accountability. A grace that doesn't have God who is holy, who is requiring repentance. Where there is judgment unless you turn to Christ to save you. It's when you begin to touch that inner nerve in a person's heart called human pride. That people become offended. Where you say, listen, the grace that I'm preaching means... That you are a sinner who is lost, whose only hope is Christ alone to save you. When you preach that, people stumble over it. They go, ah. Because it's calling people out for their sins, saying that the other option is the grace of Christ. Which means God is holy. You've offended him because of your sin. And guess what? You can't do enough good works to crawl out of your predicament. Your good works can't be a pile of stones that can get you up to holiness in heaven. 
Grace is all that we need, but we need saving grace. And saving grace comes when we admit and realize that we are sinners in need of what God can only do, not what we can do for ourselves. The same kind of dilemma on a lesser level for Christians comes when we begin to talk about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, right? People struggle with that because though we are those who possess a free will as a free moral agent making decisions that have implications for our lives, we are those people. We're not robots. At the same time, we're not autonomous creatures, We are ruled by a God who is sovereign, who knows the beginning from the end, who is Lord over all things. We're not naturalists who are just down here with a God who's distant and has nothing to do with us, has nothing to do with the details of our lives, completely detached to some sort of nebulous force of the universe. We have a God who knows, who sees, who acts, who has created a plan that we are walking in. Man plans the way, but the Lord directs the steps. And putting that together is a divine mystery. It's something that is incomprehensibly what we cannot put together mentally. Though we trust scripture, God is sovereign. He's ruling over all things and we are moral agents. But reconciling that is being humble enough to go to Scripture and saying, I am bowing myself before Scripture and trusting God that he's sovereign and we work. But typically the reason for a lack of acceptance of God being sovereign is we want just a little bit of control, even control over God. It's a stumbling block. And the cross is the ultimate stumbling block where we have to say, Required obedience for salvation is heresy. It's heresy. It's a stumbling block that people struggle with greatly. It was failing to require the ancestral laws of the Judaizers. You know, for Christians, oftentimes we will water down the gospel whether we know it or not. We water down the meaning of the cross. The cross is graphic and vile in the context of the New Testament. Now, we have architected buildings in the shape of the cross. The cross is is a symbol of beauty and grace to us as Christians. People will ornamental, you know, they'll make the cross into an ornament. But ultimately, we have to understand that for Paul, the cross was a stark reality of judgment and justice. It was death by cross, and it was the darkest form of execution. Cicero, the great orator of uh, 63 BC, said it was a, the cross was the most cruel and disgusting punishment. For the Latinized culture during that time, the word cruz was, or for cross, was a swear word. Rome wouldn't allow their citizens to be crucified on a cross. It was bloody. It was awful. And it's, it's horrific, but it's, it means judgment, and it defines grace for us as grace that comes with a price that was paid by a person who could only pay it for our sins. Our sins are what make the cross gruesome, and at the same time, what make the cross beautiful. An ancient dialogue between Justin the Christian and Trypho the Jew, Trypho refused to believe God's Christ could have been crucified. He said, but whether Christ should be so shamefully crucified, this were in doubt, 
For whoever is crucified is said in the law to be accursed. And so I am exceedingly incredulous at this point. He was stumbling over the cross. Why? Because he didn't see that the cross, someone hanging on the cross is a curse, but my sin is what put him there. The acceptance of our own sin is when we understand the scandal of the cross as something beautiful for our lives because it's grace. It's not personal achievement. It's not through personal merit that we're saved. It's very offensive to our modern culture. Our modern culture with, uh, you know, gains in technology, doing things. I, I was reading an article about this generation that grew up in my generation where we had TV and that was it. You stood up and changed the channel. You've, then remotes happened and we're fighting over the remote, right, and losing it, still do that. Then there were VCRs, these giant box, you know, reels of tape. I still remember watching home movies with the big reel-to-reel. Anybody remember that? I watched those in school, right? There's no such thing as a, a phone that wasn't attached to your wall. Now we walk around with pocket computers that can tell us anything we want. There used to be a phenomenon where we would watch on TV this actor named Adam West, who was Batman, who would speak to a computer and it would tell him things. Really? Huh. Go figure. We think we are part machine now, though, because of this phenomenon, and we, we've become codependent upon our technology, and our codependence, in part, can turn into idolatry, and it can in turn into pride, where we believe we can create things, and we know things that are beyond what we should think. We have to bring everything back to the hanging, bloody sacrifice of the cross where God is our sufficiency, God is our life, God's power is what's beautiful to us, not our own power. We believe we can create virtual realities that are better than God's reality. The Scottish theologian James Denny of the 1800s said, the aim of the epistle of Galatians is to show that all Christianity is contained in the cross. F.F. Bruce said, the whole book of Galatians is about the cross and Christ crucified. That's what we have to bring our life back to. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then we can enjoy all of the varieties of life in the 21st century because they are submitted to that thought, that reality. Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, which means saved, both Jew and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul was preaching this message, and that's why he was being beat up for it verbally, and then ultimately physically, he was being persecuted for preaching Christ. The offense had not been removed. And I want to be clear on something. When you preach Christ, offend people not because of your delivery, offend people because of the message. Boldness is not belligerence. Bravery is not being willing to fight and argue. The message of the cross is sufficient. Christ alone saves is sufficient for us to preach. And our last point in this section is their path, the false teacher's path is pagan. They were on a murderous mission 
Their influence was wide. Their penalty was inescapable. And their methods are malicious. Now, this is verse 12. It's the rudest phrase in the New Testament. So now I'm an expositor, so I can't skip it. Here we go. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And all of my preamble is to give the sort of ground beneath this statement. This is the rudest and crudest, whether pen or spoken, out of Paul's lips that Paul ever said. He said this to shock not just the false teachers, but to shock the churches into seeing where they were going. Paul's reference to emasculation is a reference to a cult of the goddess of nature, Sibylle, that Galatians were involved in, especially in northern Galatia. People were worshipers of nature, worshipers of naturalism, worshipers of the elementary things of the flesh. This was referenced earlier in the book of Galatians about the elemental things that people were worshiping, the earth, wind, and fire of the world, the naturalism that we see even in in Hollywood and media today, the Oprah Winfrey movement of of media that is still around. That's this kind of paganism that is influencing culture. And Paul is saying that the false teachers who were coming into the church were introducing paganism into Christianity. Philippians 3, 2 is happening there in Philippi. Look out for the dogs, evildoers who mutilate the flesh by adding circumcision, something that was a dedicated religious rite from the old covenant. By adding that or requiring that to saving grace, that becomes a work, a physical work that's pagan into the church. Just like the temple prophets or the temple priest of the Sibylean cult of naturalism where they would literally castrate themselves, a form of self-castration to enter in as male worshipers into that cult. Paul is referencing that here saying those who are stirring you up, those who unsettle you, the troublemakers, same word, those who are troubling you, he wishes that they would just go all the way into that cult practice to expose everything that's really going on. This is paganism within the church. The word unsettle is used of the crowd scenes in the book of Acts. You think of the crowd mob scenes that would come up to persecute the apostles, the troubling work. This is that kind of spiritual violence that was happening in the church. This is the doctrines of demon work of 1 Timothy 4.1. This is the Alexander the coppersmith who did Paul great harm. These are the, the malicious and, and horrible people who were making the gospel not the gospel within the church. And Paul, again, was leaving judgment with the Lord. Don't misunderstand his righteous indignation here. Don't miss his righteous indignation. It could be sinfully wrong for us to be too passive about false teaching and heresy. If we just ignore things and let people go and don't take stands and don't step in front of harm's way, then we could be sinning. Paul was being angry here, but sinning not, as Ephesians four twenty six says. But he was leaving judgment with the Lord. Verse 10, remember, he was confident that they'll bear the penalty of the Lord. He wasn't being vengeful or malicious, but he was wanting 
them to be shocked into what was going on. Galatians 4, 3, and 8 and 10, there was elementary, the elementary principles, the naturalism was creeping into the church. You're trying to observe days and months of the Jewish calendar, just like pagan rituals. That's not Christianity. He was warning them not to regress back into worldliness. He was confronting the false teachers also, like, like Elijah did at Mount Carmel. Remember when he took on the Baal worshipers at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, where they were, they were testing Elijah, one man, versus the crowd. And the crowd, they were, they were whooping up in an emotional frenzy, uh, an ancient rave where they begin to cut themselves and lance themselves on the mountain because their God was a no-show. Elijah, 1 Kings 18, 27 said, either your God is musing, relieving, he was musing that he's relieving himself or on a journey or asleep. It's making them crazy. Our culture is becoming more and more pagan. It is. It's becoming more and more pagan. It's becoming more gender neutral. It's becoming more androgynous. androgynous. It is. And we don't need to be blind to that. We don't need to be um, afraid to engage it either. We have Christ. We have the gospel. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, I'm confronting paganism that's in the church. I'm going there. I'm calling it out. Not to be belligerent. Not, not to be offensive through the delivery. Never do that. We want to be the most gracious, kind, loving, long-suffering. Willing to be like colorblind and be whatever blind and sit with people, human people, and say, have you considered Christ? Have you considered a relationship with Christ to fill up what's lacking inside your heart? You're trying to do things to yourself externally that can only be fixed internally by the saving grace of the gospel. He wanted, though, the false teachers to be removed. Deuteronomy 23 said that those who mutilate themselves or emasculate themselves in pagan forms, they're not allowed to enter into the temple assembly, Deuteronomy 23.1. The Phillips Bible translates Galatians 5.12, I wish those who were so eager to cut your bodies would cut themselves off from you altogether. Seem to be separated out. John Stott put it this way, very graciously. He said, I venture to say that if... If we were as concerned for God's church as God's word and God's word as Paul was, we too would wish the false teachers might cease from the land. Well, you say, we don't, we don't have this problem within the church, but we do. There is paganism that enters into the church all the time. There are people who even say they're worshiping Christ who worship something or someone who lyrically is not biblically Christ. And through vain repetition, just lose themselves in themselves. And they're not thinking about and worshiping the true God. There are those who in non-cessationist denominations uh, who say that you are required for us to really affirm you that you are saved. You're required to do something more spiritually. You need a, a spiritual manifestation of one form or another, a deeper life, or perhaps their form of what they call speaking in tongues. You've got to do that for us to affirm the authenticity of your faith. 
Anything that's extra to the gospel is pagan. There's an opposite extreme, and that is what we find in the liturgical movements. There's many postmoderns and many uh, millennials, I should say, that are turning back to high church liturgy where incense and pomp and circumstance becomes what they are clinging to for their spiritual well-being. And they're looking at those things, those rites and rituals, as ways to feel like they are strong spiritually. Whether it's those extreme versions or subtle versions within the church, the haves and the have-nots that I've talked about already, we have to be discerning for the sake of each other. We have to examine our own hearts, and we have to be careful to help each other out in the body of Christ. We all need that help, all of us.